listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, listeners, welcome back to the Rent Roll Radio Show. I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. We're here with a really special guest today. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Bigger Pockets. Well, we have Bigger Pockets CEO Scott Trench. Scott, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So, Scott, just kick it off with your story. How did you get interested in real estate? What's, what's the background? Sure. So I graduated college in 2013 and started my career as a financial analyst at a Fortune 500 company in August of 2013. And within about three months before the end of that year, I decided that that was not the path that I wanted to take with my career. You know, I, I looked around and saw, hey, if I if I keep doing this, the best case scenario is I become the CFO after 20, 25, 30 years. And that's not what I wanted for my, my life and career. I didn't think that was going to be fulfilling or I was going to be in control. And so I became really infatuated with the, uh, infatuated is the wrong word. I became really interested <laughs> in the financial independence movement and in real estate investing in, in particular. Two resources really were the, the drivers of that. One was Mr. Money Mustache and his blog and his way of life that, that sure. he teaches. And then the Bigger Pockets community. I was a big fan of Bigger Pockets before I ever joined as an employee. And I really kind of merged those two philosophies of frugality and living life efficiently and happily on very little money, and then using my income on that low, low spending lifestyle to generate a large amount of investable liquidity, which I then deployed in real estate. So in 2014, I began networking. I consumed a large amount of informational content on real estate investing, mostly through Bigger Pockets and the podcast. And at the end of the year, I closed my first house hack duplex. And around the same time, I also changed jobs after I serendipitously met the founder of Bigger Pockets and pounded him for a couple of weeks. That's how I got involved there. So, how did you meet Josh? I was very interested in real estate investing, obviously, and, and I would talk about it with everyone I met. And one day, I was walking a dog around a park, and I just met a older gentleman, and we started talking about stocks, real estate investing, and entrepreneurship, and. That conversation led to an invitation from him to join a mastermind group that he hosted once a month on Thursday mornings, very early in the morning, with a bunch of local entrepreneurs. So I took all of those entrepreneurs out to lunch one by one, and one of them happened to work in the same co-working space as Josh Dorkin, the founder of Bigger Pockets. And I went over and was like, oh my gosh, you're Josh. You've changed my life. I listened to your podcast. It's wonderful to meet you. So how did you go from just getting in the door at Bigger Pockets to CEO? What, is, what did that transition look like? Sure. So I, I joined uh, again in, in mid, late 2014. I think it was July 2014. And at that time, I was the third employee. It was Josh Dorkin, the co-host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, Brandon Turner, and then myself as a third employee. We also had a couple of folks who were sort of like employees in some way or not part of the family, contractors that had been around a lot longer than me, but I was the only other guy in the office next to Josh. And so from there, we grew from about two or 300,000 members over the next six years to over 1.7 million members and oh, wow. 1 million in revenue to 20 million in revenue. And all these other different aspects of the community kind of began to scale alongside that. And I just had the privilege of joining at the right time and getting to work side by side with Josh and tried to make the most of every opportunity to help drive growth or support him personally or take over operating segments of the business like customer support and the publishing business, our advertising arm, 
general operations, finance and accounting, HR, those types of things. And gradually, I moved into the president role end of 2017. So how do you scale like y'all have scaled? So a lot of on the Bigger Pockets podcast, at the end, you ask, you know, what separates a successful real estate investor from those who fail or, or give up or never get started? What in your opinion, separates a successful podcaster from those who fail or, or give up or never get started? That's not where I expected to go with that question. Um, <laughs> for a podcast specifically, I think it is how you build the show and how you build the community around the show. So do you have good guests? Do you have good content? Do you have a good flow? And then are you building that community around that show? Are you allowing your listeners to engage with you in multiple ways on social, on in a group setting, maybe on Facebook or on your website, like we have with our forums on Bigger Pockets, are you encouraging in-person meetups? Those kinds of things. I think those are the things that really sustain a podcast. It's, it's one extension of a brand, not the end of it and in of itself. Got it. So my other question would be, where did you think I was going with that question? Because I'm sure we'd love to hear the answer to that as well. Oh, I thought you were asking like, what do you what do you think separated bigger pockets success from over those those years? That's what I thought you were going with. That. And you know that that is in the question. What sets y'all apart? And and I guess I would assume it's it's the the answer you just gave me. It's kind of yeah, building up the community around it. It's pretty much that. Yeah. It's just the the fact that we were able to build that community and our kind of separating factor, I think, from most other platforms these days is that you're not listening to Scott Trench's individual brilliance. You know, I'm not that smart. You're not listening. It doesn't yeah. require me to produce great content all the time. We have a community and we're able to see after you've posted a thousand, five thousand, ten thousand times to our forums and received tens of thousands of votes on that content that you've posted, all sourced from the community, who the articulate, charismatic, knowledgeable, good guys are in the real estate investing community. And then they are the ones who come on to our podcast or produce blog articles or write books or host our future podcasts or all that kind of stuff is sourced from that community aspect. All that content is generated for free as a hobby by self-made multimillionaires who are just truly passionate about real estate investing. And that gives us a vast network of free content and ideas that helps us kind of always stay relevant, always stay at the top of search engines, always have kind of the better odds of success than the next guy at producing some of the best content that's most helpful to our listeners. Awesome. Sounds like you guys have it down to a science. Let's hop back over to the, to the real estate for a minute. So how much real estate do you own today? Sure. So I own two duplexes and a quadplex here in Denver, and then I also invest in a syndication out in Phoenix. Okay. Can we go back to that first duplex? Can you run through the the numbers on that and tell us how, how you got into that and what it's performed like? Sure thing. So at the time I was making around $48,000 a year with my uh, salary. I also had a couple of side hustles. So I probably brought in an extra five, $6,000 a year driving for Uber, tutoring, that kind of stuff. And I was able to save up about $20,000 by the end of 2014 after that first year of work. And I switched the job right before I bought the duplex. So didn't really have a change in income with the shift to bigger pockets. I purchased the property with $12,000 down. At the time, I would have had between eighteen dollars and $22,000 in cash. So most of my liquidity went to that deal. I used it so 5% down, $12,000 and $240,000 purchase price. My mortgage was about $1,550 between principal, interest, taxes, insurance, and PMI, the low down payment FHA loan. 
I fixed up the other unit, got a tenant in there. They paid me $1,100 and their cat paid me $50. And then I had a uh, roommate in my side paying $550, brings you to $1,700 on a $1,550 mortgage and you're breaking just even to live. Awesome. So once you got that first duplex, what did you do next? It took me three or four months to get it all rented out. And then I sat there for 15 months before moving again. So I, I worked my job at Bigger Pockets and forgot about real estate investing for a while while I rebuilt my financial position. I, I was very uncomfortable not having a very large financial reserve. So I wanted to build back up to $20,000 in liquidity um, so that I didn't have to have any you know fear of a market correction or anything like that. And, and I wanted to build a financial fortress. So that's what I did. So you bought your first duplex with an FHA loan. Mm-hmm. And then how did you buy your next property? So I actually decided to go with a partner on that next one and buy kind of the same thing. So a buddy of mine did a house hack and we decided to merge interests with our two house hacks. So he, he bought that one. And then 15 months later, we bought yet another property, a quadplex that we went on with. So. Now with the quadplex, are you, were, you, were you house hacking that as well? No. I think at this point, after house hacking in one form or another for seven years, you know, house hack is great, right? Because it allows you to put down a very low amount of money and leverage that for a very high outcome, right? Like, like you can put down $12,000 and $240,000 and that's the lowest risk way to live. I have a tenant paying off the mortgage sure. uh, you know, for me. So I'm not, I don't have to outlay any cash to live and I'm not a homeowner without a tenant and I'm not paying rent. That's gonna, that I know is going to increase long-term, right? So that's wonderful. But then after you get going for a couple of years and you build a several hundred thousand or even a seven-figure net worth over a, a period of time, the getting a 100% ROI or a very big ROI on a $12,000 investment becomes less meaningful to the overall position. So I think I'm about done house hacking this year as I approach 30 because I've, I've already re- reaped the benefits from it. And while I could still get a good return on the next twelve or fifteen or twenty thousand dollars invested, I'd rather generate a fifteen or twenty percent ROI on a hundred thousand dollars. That would be much more meaningful to, to my financial position at this point. Absolutely. And so you're in Denver, so I'm assuming those properties have probably appreciated a good bit in the last few years. Yes. Do you mind sharing with us how much they've grown in value since you got them? Sure. So at the time of purchase, you know, one was purchased for 240, one was purchased for 360, one was purchased for 350. I'd estimate that they average $500,000 in value a piece now. So what is that? Let's, let's do some math there. It's 360. That's 600,000, $950,000 for purchased and 1.5 million in current asset value, give or take. Wow. So Let's say that first duplex you bought was went up to five hundred thousand, and you bought it for two forty with twelve thousand down. So that means cash flow aside, you, you, I got you, pretty good return. Yeah, <laughs> I can't even do that math in my head. Two hundred sixty thousand divided by twelve thousand. Well, I, I would incur closing costs to sell it, but but yeah, you know, I, I'm thinking about hey, do I refinance and pull that cash out? Do I sell because I'm no longer getting a good return? Right, that's another problem that real estate investors face is. Now, if I assume a 3 or 4% appreciation rate with 50-50 debt to equity, my return on equity is going to be very low in sure. the, the, the period following this. So, so are you going to pull the money out? What, what is your plan to disposition them at this point? Because you do, you have a lot of debt equity sitting in there. Yeah, you know, I'm going to run some analyses and I'm either going to cash out, refi or sell. 
Now, if you cash out refi, would your rents be able to cover the higher mortgage with the, with the higher cash out? Yeah, I would cash out refi such that I was able to continue cash flowing reasonably well. Today, as that we're recording this, what is it, March 12th? March 12th. Yeah. You know, we've got the whole coronavirus thing. We've got really, really low interest rates for a time. So I think I'd still be able to keep my same cash flow in place there. Now, in terms of risk, though, here's a, a misnomer about risk in real estate, right? I would much rather have a $400,000 mortgage and $200,000 of cash in the bank than a $200,000 mortgage and $300,000 of equity. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. So it's when you take out that leverage and then you reinvest it inappropriately, that's when you get in over your head. Yeah, I think. absolutely. So let me ask you this. You mentioned after the, the house hacks and the partnership on the fourplex, you, you're also invested in some a syndication. So obviously you've you know, got your hands on some more cash since then and we're, we're outside of needing the house hack. Why did you decide to go invest passively in a syndication versus doing something like a, like a burr type of investment? Sure. So the simple answer is I had the privilege of joining a media company and a content company called Bigger Pockets, right? As an early employee. And I find myself as president and CEO of what is going to be a very fast growing and major corporation. And I think that this business is what deserves my time and attention. I think we're having a very positive impact on society and many people's lives by enabling them to access real estate investing. I think we have a chance to grow very rapidly and produce a good outcome for our employees and their careers. And I think that financially for our investors, of which I am one, there's a very good financial long-term opportunity to grow the business. So that is where I devote my 40, 50, 60 hours a week. And I'm not interested in the business of Burr or the business of rehabbing rental properties. I want to either mostly passively or totally passively invest in real estate, not actively invest in real estate. And that's a function of the, the dollar value of my time and where I think I can get the most return from that and have the biggest impact. Awesome. That's a perfect answer. There's so many real estate investors or real estate investing enthusiasts out there that are disenfranchised with their W-2 job and you know want to dive headfirst into actively investing. So it's so great to hear how you were able to kind of like combine your passion into your day job, you know, mm -hmm. so it truly makes sense for you to passively invest because you're so passionate about your day job, which happens to be real estate and real estate investing and helping others. So that's awesome to hear. Yeah. And, and, you know, recently I put my pro properties in property management, right? So my, you know, my gross rents are probably 8,400 bucks across those properties. That's going to cost me 840 bucks a month <laughs> yeah. for the property management, right? Well, again, my time I think is better spent doing things other than prop than managing the properties. And the fact that I've had to manage the properties was preventing me mentally from wanting to buy more real estate. So the fact that I now have a system in place to run the business and manage the business means that I can buy more local real estate in Denver as well. So I do plan to buy yet another property here in Denver and as in addition to potentially investing in some syndications this year. So with, with Denver market being so hot right now and property values being so high, have you ever considered investing out of state or, or maybe out of the city? Is there a reason you're still investing in the, what seems to be an overheated market? Well, I, I invest in Denver, Colorado with the majority, most of the money I've invested, the dollars have first gone into index funds, right? 
So I actually have put more money into index funds than real estate. I've taken much more leverage on real estate. So I own much more asset value in real estate than I do index funds, right? And I actually have more equity in real estate as well than I have in index funds. But most of, most of my money goes into index funds. After that, I invest in Denver, in Denver real estate specifically, because I think that long-term, Denver real estate is going to appreciate at a faster rate than that of the national average. And while I care about cash flow, I think cash flow is important. I think that the name of the game is what is my cash flow going to be in 10 or 15 years? Not what is it going to be this year, next year, the year after. As long as my cash flow is above a pass line that reduces my risk in owning the property, I do not want to be committing extra capital to my properties. That is a no-go for me. But I believe that I can still find properties in Denver that I can purchase with 20, 25% down and still produce enough rent to cover my mortgage and any operating costs, including property management. And I believe that if I hold on to those properties for a long period of time, that I'm going to be rewarded with greater cash flow in 10 years than I will be with a property in, uh, you know, I don't want to dump on Cincinnati, but I'll use Cincinnati, for example, <laughs> Midwestern city, right? That is my philosophic guiding policy is that long term, I think I'll be better off by, you know, I'll think, gee, I was very smart for investing in Denver rather than an alternative. There's probably a bunch of cities that that would work with. Got it. So you still to this day invest more in index funds than you do in real estate? In terms of total dollars, yes. I just commit every month a substantial amount of capital to index funds, both in my 401k and outside of it. And then I also build up reserves for real estate or I'll refinance my properties and use that to continue investing in real estate. But I intended basically dollar cost average, both with index funds and real estate in the Denver market over a long period of time. And then because I have the privilege of, of having joined a rocket ship and having a great career, I have, I have the ability to, on top of that, invest in other things like syndications or other opportunities as they arise. Awesome. Awesome. So you said you're interested in investing more in some Denver properties. Are you going to continue with the small multifamilies or are you interested in single family space? I like the small multifamily much better because I can still get my 30 year fixed rate Fannie Mae mortgage with great interest rate on those properties. And I think you just get more rent per dollar of purchase price and get better cash flow on the small multis than you do on the single families. That could be less true if you're doing a rent by the room or something creative, but that's, that's kind of what I believe. I, again, I don't want to be running a business. I want to be investing and that's where I like the multis. Absolutely. So I guess kind of shifting gears, you mentioned the coronavirus and, and everything kind of how it's impacting the, the economy at the moment. Can you share your kind of thoughts on, on its impact on both Wall Street and how that might impact the real estate market and what your opinion is of what we should expect going forward. Yeah, you know, I mean, look, I think this is a day-by-day situation. The day that we're recording this, they just shut down the NBA, the <laughs> Major League Baseball, the NHL, just kind of all can like unprecedented set of sets of actions. You know, we would, Trump announced a travel ban to Europe or travel restriction to Europe. So a lot of interesting and crazy things going on right now in general. As far as the health stuff goes out there, right? You know, I am no expert on this. What my thoughts are, based on the research I'm gathering, is it seems like there's a lot of talk about how there's probably a lot more people carrying this virus than have been confirmed to actually have it. So you probably have a lot more people who have been infected and are either having mild symptoms or no symptoms relative to the actual 
population has confirmed cases. So what that implies is that the death rate from this virus is probably much lower, or at least somewhat lower, than what is being officially reported. Almost everyone seems to agree that that's the case. The question is, is it an order of magnitude lower? Is it a few percentage points lower? What is that, right? So what's happened, what you're finding is happening right now is major portions of the economy are shutting down in an unprecedented way, and it's scaring the bejesus out of Wall Street, right? We're, we're down 25% in the last two weeks in the stock market. What's going to happen going forward? Well, if some of those things I just spoke about are true, which I don't know, and this is a, this is, I'm probably dated by the time this airs. When does this air? We're going to be two months out. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this is going to, yeah. All right. So this is going to air two months from now and I'm going to look like an idiot. I'm yeah. Sure, right? They're going to know I'll, if we're wrong or not. <laughs> yeah. But I'll, I'll keep going anyways. You know, what, what I think we're going to find is that the, the, the actual number of deaths from this may be less than what the doomsdayers are predicting. Right. And if, if that's the case, I think that your real estate market is going to be relatively insulated from that. People still got to live somewhere. They still have to, they still have to pay rent or, or make their mortgage payments. I think that it could trigger a recession. I still think that that's a slightly lower probability. It's still, you know, if it's a 34% chance, maybe rapidly rising day by day as panic sets in. So maybe by the time we get here, they'll be like, oh, it's obviously a recession, but whatever. <laughs> right? So, you know, let's say, let's say we get there. In a recessionary environment, people move in with their relatives. They lose their jobs, right? That hurts equity values and rents, which will impact the rental real estate market, which requires you to have a cash position, requires you to be reasonably well capitalized, to have a conservative cash flow assumption. And I think a lot of the investors owning rental property these days really do a reasonable job of that. So I'm wondering if we're going to see, you know, last time you lose your shirt because you have eight rentals, you're way, you're, they're interest only loans, you, then the principal payment starts coming up and you don't have the cash flow to support it. I bet you there's a lot less of that in the real estate rental, the one to four unit space in particular here in 2020 than there was back in 2008. And I wonder if real estate's going to be relatively less hard hit, but still hit than other parts of the economy, like the stock market and some of these other areas. So, you know, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to continue buying rental real estate, according to my long-term dollar cost averaging strategy. And if the market continues to plummet very heavily, I'll just be a little bit more aggressive about my investment in stocks. Right. So I'm not going to actually change anything I'm doing for, for real estate investing because I've been conservatively capitalized the whole time, except for that very first moment when I bought the first house hack and didn't rest until I built back my reserve. Right, And then I might just deploy more of my, my cash to stock investments while the market seems to be panicking in particular. Yeah, I was watching the the stock market drop on my phone today. And as I'm sure everybody's scrambling to sell, all I could think was, I wish I had more cash to buy right now. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is, is you know, I, I've been, you know, I, I wrote a book called Set for Life. So Excellent I, book. Uh, yeah, thank you. I, I like to think that if if I go bankrupt, then that's particularly embarrassing for me. You know, not, 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 not afraid, like the bankruptcy is, you know, losing all your, everything you have is bad enough, but how humiliating. What would it be <laughs> if I went bankrupt? So I, I actually do have a, a, a large hoard of cash relative to my <laughs> investment position. Um, and so that's what I'm thinking about doing is, is beginning to deploy a, a portion of that into some of these investments. Some of these asset classes look like they're getting demolished by fear, which may be in excess of the potential damage 
I wonder if the economic costs of this virus are actually going to be higher than the human costs uh, when it's all said and done. But by the time you listen to this, you'll know Whoa. exactly how wrong I am, <laughs> dear, dear listener. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's causing, I mean, like I was telling you before in the pre-show, you know, just with with my business, it's causing extreme problems with techs getting out and fixing basic infrastructure in our society. You've seen the supply chain slow down. So I think the economic impact at this point is much more catastrophic. So switching gears off of that, what advice do you have for real estate listeners that are out there or just getting started, maybe interested in getting into real estate investing or looking to scale, what's your best piece of advice that you could give them? You know, I, I don't think anything changes because of the environmental conditions. You know, if, if you're listening to this in two months and a recession just rapidly hits that quickly in, in the market, you're going to see a shift from a seller's market to a buyer's market in, in real estate. And the difficulty will become financing acquisitions or getting loans, you know, bringing your equity capital or getting loans to, to buy it rather than the quality of great cash flow and deals, which is the, the challenge in early 2020, right? Is, is finding that great cash flow. So I, I think the answer is the same as it's always been, is invest for the very long term and run your numbers, understand what you think are the, the, the worst case scenarios when you buy a property and underwrite to those conservative expectations and then invest, you know, but also factor in that, that long-term appreciation and where you want to be in 10, 15, 20, 30 years with your investment and um, buy consistently, but not aggressively from, from a, a financial fortress, a strong financial foundation. Absolutely. So finally, I have our, our radio round where we just ask three questions. Do you let the you know, listeners get to know you a little bit better? First question is, what's your favorite quote? All right. My favorite quote, I just pulled this up here. This is, this is one that I put in my goal sheet every day. It's Michelangelo. The greater danger for most of us lies not in setting our aim too high and falling short, but in setting our aim too low and achieving our mark. Absolutely. That's an awesome one. What's your favorite book? My, one of my, my favorite book is The Millionaire Next Door. I think it just shows a great timeless example. Like, Here's what millionaires do. They don't look like millionaires. They don't act like millionaires. That's why they're millionaires, right? They earn a strong, high income. They play great defense. They spend less than they earn. They also generate reasonable offense and they invest in appreciable assets. Excellent book. I think that was the third financial book I ever read. It was a, definitely a good one. What's your favorite thing to do outside of work? Sure. So my, you know, I would say my favorite thing, which I do less and less of these days, unfortunately, is play rugby. I've been playing that for 20 years since I was eight years old. And that's kind of my sport. That's, that's what I'm kind of just naturally good at, you know, not naturally good at the instincts are all there. So some people play basketball or tennis and know exactly what to do. I, I know that in rugby. And then outside of that, I like to, to play some video games. I like to ski. I like to do Colorado activities, drink craft beer, all that kind of good stuff. Tech awesome. Girl in Colorado, right? What's the worst injury you've ever gotten playing rugby? So I actually had a rare injury called a Liz Frank injury, L-I-S-F-R-A-N-C. And that's the midfoot injury. It's not an ankle or a toe injury. It's the ligaments that tie together the bones in your foot that connect your, your ankle to your toes. That was required me to be non-weight bearing for 11 weeks, which is a very long time. I got very <laughs> good at balancing on my other leg and hopping around and all that kind of stuff. Awesome. I have a screw in my foot. Yeah, all that good stuff. 
Oh, wow. Well, Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you? And I'm sure they know where to learn more about you. I imagine as myself, everybody has has started with bigger pockets when they when they come to expand their real estate knowledge, but just in case there's any outliers. Yeah, sure. You can find me at Bigger Pockets. You can search me in the search bar and you'll find my profile. You can ping me there. You can email me at scott at biggerpockets.com if you have questions. I'd love, always love to feature questions on our Bigger Pockets Money Show podcast, which you can find on iTunes. I'll go there and I'll plug uh, Set for Life is a, a book that I wrote about how I think the median income earner with the standing start with little to no assets can get started investing and achieving financial freedom at a rapid pace. How to go from zero to $25,000 then $25,000 to $100,000 in assets and $100,000 to financial freedom. Absolutely. Thanks again, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at RentRollRadio.com or sterling at CrestworthCapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.